Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 77. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the prophets. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading comes from John 6. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land towards which they were going. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. They also saw that Jesus had not got into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias came near, the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. O oh God, who knows our weakness, our vulnerability, and our struggle to trust and follow, you graciously call us into life with you. Would you meet us now as we reflect on your scriptures, move our hearts to hear what you say, and open us to change and growth, that we may walk with Christ. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So we're continuing in our series of sermons that focus on the seven signs provided in the Gospel of John. And as a church community, we're taking up the Easter season to hone in our attention to the ways that Jesus reveals himself in the course of his life and ministry that points to the way that God is bringing his rescue to the world through him. 
These signs are selected by the gospel writer as particularly telling and informative to who Jesus is. And they are drawn out for us to understand why it is in and through Jesus that we come to know and experience the fullness of life with God. The, inf- the invitation from John is to believe, to see who Jesus truly is and to entrust ourselves to him. There are many questions that you and I may have about how believing Jesus works itself out into our lives or just what it means to say, I believe. As John invites us later in his uh, gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in his name, I know I have life that is truly life. Excuse me. We are working out in our daily lives what this means all the time. For sure, some here today would say that they do not believe for all sorts of reasons. What we are given a glimpse of today through this text as we observe the disciples and the crowd, I hope will help us to grasp the dynamic of ongoing belief in Jesus amidst ever-evolving circumstances and our own internal longings and questions. Our text for today is situated within the larger narrative of John chapter 6, which starts with Jesus and his disciples having left Capernaum, the place where much of Jesus' ministry was located, and Jesus and the disciples move across the sea of Galilee to a hillside, trying to get some time away from the pursuing crowds. At this point, the crowds were tracking Jesus down because word was spreading about the signs he was doing for the sick. The seeking of Jesus by more and more people continued to grow. With the Passover very near, the presence of a figure who was performing signs of healing among the sick, doing things that would point to deliverance and God working in a new way in this particular moment. It created great anticipation and only intensified the deep longings for a promised deliverer, rescuer that was already deeply set into the imaginations of the people and was so much a part of the Passover celebrations and the retelling and the re-narrating of God's mighty acts of deliverance out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. God would one day exercise his covenant faithfulness and fulfill his promises to bring ultimate rescue and set things right. For much of the people in Jesus' day, this meant a rescue from the oppressive rule of Rome. And in John's gospel, the Passover festival is given real focus. It it bookends the gospel in Jesus' movement and ministry. Uh, In Jesus' first sign of turning water into wine, it takes place as Passover is nearing, and that's in John chapter 2. We spent some time on that a few weeks ago. This is at the early stage of his public ministry. The text we're focusing on today is the second Passover in John's text, and it's essentially the midway point of Jesus' ministry, when tension is building in a palpable way due to the crowd misunderstanding the way of Jesus the way he was to bring about God's rescue into the world. All of this leading to the final Passover celebration, which is mentioned in chapter 13, when Jesus celebrates his last meal with his disciples and is subsequently arrested, 
killed, and ultimately rises again in victory. And in chapter 6, at this second Passover in Jesus' ministry, he points in very clear ways through his signs that in and through him, God is bringing forth a new and greater exodus. He does this through the feeding of the 5,000, with much allusion to the feeding of manna in the wilderness, which our sermon last week focused on. The feeding episode ends, and the verse right before our reading for today has Jesus escaping away from the crowd's intentions to take him by force to be king. The crowd sees Jesus' sign and interprets it as a strong wink and a nod that he is the one God has sent to deliver them. And his disciples, he does this through the feeding of the 5,000, sorry, missed my spot. Jesus escapes them and withdraws away from the pursuing crowds to the mountain by himself, and his disciples go ahead of him across the sea, away from the crowds. This narrative is also seen in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark. It is of concern in those tellings that Jesus immediately has the disciples get in a boat without him while he is to go to the mountain to pray. It may be understand that the intentions of the crowd were deeply troubling to Jesus, for he knew what he came to do. Partly, there's legitimate concern that the disciples themselves are being pulled into this narrative that Jesus will be the one to provide a political revolution and set them free from Rome. So Jesus quickly sends the disciples away from the crowd across the sea. And it's at crucial moments in Jesus' ministry that we noticed in the text the gospel writers help us to see. When the disciples are failing to understand the way of Jesus is being challenged, that Jesus gets away by himself to pray. And in this we see Jesus practicing union with the Father, understanding and following forward in faithfulness to carry out his role as a messianic servant and not as a freedom fighter against Rome. So we start in our text for today in verse 16, and it says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. The disciples had just experienced a full and stimulating day with Jesus, watching him miraculously multiply five loaves and two fish so that thousands of hungry people are fed. There's an abundance of food left over, and yet they saw the crowd's reaction after all of it, that they were wanting to make Jesus king. And they also may have had those same wonderings and questions and hopes about Jesus, but they are now out on the sea. It is dark, Jesus is not with them. The swirl of thoughts and emotions that were within each of them must have been overwhelming. Along with that, the absence of Jesus and his way of explaining, helping them to understand all that was taking place, his compassionate presence that they've come to know. It is particular note that it is dark. And in John's gospel, it's important to notice when darkness and light are mentioned. The imagery is used in so many places to denote many things, but understanding or lack of it, or walking in truth or falsehood. 
And the disciples were definitely in a place of uncertainty and confusion as they got into the boat. Something beautiful had just taken place, and yet it quickly turned into Jesus needing to sneak away. The crowd had their intentions, their agenda. In the darkness without Jesus, the wind and the sea becomes rough. In the dark without Jesus, now fighting a storm. Fear and anxiety moving through them. They are straining and fighting to make headway and not be overtaken by the storm. Verse 19 says they had rowed for about three or four miles, which would place them, as best we understand it, in the middle of the sea, far from land. In the midst of their straining against the storm, they see Jesus walking on the sea near the boat, and their fear intensifies, and they are terrified. In other gospel accounts, it says that they think that they see a ghost on the water, and adding fear to fear, they are overwhelmed. And it's at the height of their fear that Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. That is all that we hear in our text from their interaction in this crucial moment. So in, com in comparison to all the other gospel accounts that, that carry this story, the dialogue here is reduced to only Jesus' words to identify himself and to invite their trust that they do not need to fear. Elsewhere in John, Jesus makes a number of self-identifying statements in the same way with the Greek words that translate to I am. These are the same words used in our text. And later in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In other places, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And a few others. With the disciples on the water, we see Jesus use this self-declaration while taking up this Passover image of deliverance through the sea. And I believe the gospel writers intentionally focusing on the few words that Jesus says so that we don't miss it. He is the same I am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, the one who brought his people through the Red Sea on dry land, the one who fed them in the wilderness. Jesus is pointing to a new exodus that he will accomplish. Jesus is inviting his disciples to see him in all his majesty, walking on water, not consumed or taken up by the waves. He is the one, as Psalm 77 says, whose way was through the sea, his path through the mighty waters. Jesus, the one united to God, faithfully accomplishing the purposes of God to bring ultimate rescue from the, the oppressive powers of sin and death. As we observe this as readers today, we can notice all the symbolism and imagery that the gospel writer helps us to see of Jesus walking on the water, showing his divine character of divine sovereignty over the waters. And many places exist in the Hebrew scriptures where God's power and sovereignty over the water is a portrayal of his power over chaos, his rule over the whole created order. John wants us to see that Jesus identifies with God in and through his actions and in his direct statements. Yet we can often come to texts like this with real questions, not only as the disciples do with what Jesus is ultimately about, 
but as readers of a story that seems impossible. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, uh, provides some insight into this dynamic, and you can see this uh, quote on page three of your bulletin. He says, you either come to the text with a view of what is and isn't possible in the world, which won't allow any fresh evidence, which is not perhaps the best way of approaching a book like John, which is all about challenge of the gospel to all existing worldviews, or you come to the text with at least an open mind to new possibilities hitherto unimagined. This isn't the same as being gullible or credulous, nor are the extraordinary stories in the gospels designed as some seem to have imagined to portray Jesus as being able to do anything at all simply for the sake of making a supernatural display. They are there rather as moments in the text when the strange glory of the word made flesh shines through, not so much because Jesus can do whatever he wants, but because this particular thing is so closely associated with what Israel's God does at a key moment in Israel's history. Now, this was not missed entirely by the disciples but in their immediate moment of crisis, all they wanted was for Jesus to join them in the boat. In his absence and in the dark, they are filled with fear. Now that he is present, the disciples immediately really reached the land to which they were headed. We don't get more dialogue with the disciples about these events and their processing of them until later in chapter six. And at that point, they are deeply troubled because they are confused and still don't understand what Jesus is truly about or how he is working out what it means to be the Messiah. It looks different than what they were thinking. Jesus is not fitting their understanding of what it means to carry out deliverance. And we will come back to that in a moment. I just wanna say a few words about the crowds. You notice the movement of the crowds and they're looking for Jesus that we see in verses 22 through 24. On the next day after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd notices that there was only one boat that the disciples got into and Jesus did not leave with them. The challenge is that Jesus is nowhere to be found. And as soon as more boats arrive with people seeking Jesus, the crowd makes its way across the sea back to Capernaum looking for Jesus. There's an air of mystery with Jesus. Where is he? Where did he go? The crowd is seeking Jesus. He has healed the sick. He has fed thousands. And they are like, we must go where he is. We can't miss what's going to happen next. And also, as we were told previously, there's a certain agenda they have. They want to make him king. They see that he has what it takes. He's done the things that would be a sign or a signifier. The crowds do end up tracking down Jesus and they get into conversation with him back in Capernaum on the other side of the sea. And Jesus in the remaining verses of the chapter talks at length in very challenging terms why he is not just another Moses. He is not just a miraculous dispenser of bread. He is in, in his own body, in his own person, the very bread of life. He is the one that will fulfill and satisfy all of their ultimate needs. He is the one that will provide access to life eternal. 
after speaking of these things intentionally with much metaphor and symbolism, there was much bewilderment and confusion among the people. Even those that were following close to Jesus beyond the 12 disciples went away from Jesus. They found his sayings too difficult. Jesus then asked the 12 in verse 67, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answers Jesus saying, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. As I was preparing for this sermon on this text of Jesus walking on the water, after feeding of the 5,000 disciples in their fear, the crowd's persistent searching of Jesus, I couldn't help but think of the varied ways we approach a life of following Jesus today. The acute setting that we get to have a glimpse of, of Jesus with his disciples, performing signs that tell of who he truly is, it is clear, even in that circumstance, that most people are not getting what he is ultimately doing. But at the same time, you see the disciples' interactions with Jesus, and they're experiencing close-up displays of his majesty, his divine power. And even with all of that, they are still confused and in many circumstances uncertain. Even at Jesus' arrest in chapter 18, much later in the story, Peter is still trying to fight to resist what Jesus says must happen. As people who live on the other side of this story of Jesus' resurrection, of a world that has been impacted for centuries by the good news of Jesus, I would say there's still much about following Jesus today that can confound us. We're confused many times. And I say this not as a word of discouragement, but to highlight some of the dynamics that are crucial in following Jesus in our day. In the story of Jesus with his disciples, with the onlooking crowds, <clears throat> the religious leaders that we are given in the Gospels, Jesus is revealing to them who God is and how he is the one who God has sent. All throughout these stories, we observe people evolving in their understanding of who Jesus is or resisting that invitation to reconsider what they thought God could be doing. In all of it, there was an ongoing invitation to trust, which was continuing to require all sorts of adjustments internal to themselves and to their view of God and to the, of their own lives. And I just wanna highlight two dynamics with following Jesus and actively trusting Jesus for us to consider today two dynamics that relate to each other. And the first is the posture and virtue of humility, and the second is curiosity and openness. In our day, humility can often be seen as weakness, but without an understanding of our own limitations, we will not be able to fully appreciate what we do not know and what insight, gifts, and perspectives others bring. We see this in so many ways in the public sphere where humility is lacking and polarization and division continue to spread. 
And this affects, this affects us in our efforts to follow Jesus as a community and as individuals. We can often lock into a level of certainty with our own understanding of what God is like, how Jesus is at work in various circumstances, and on and on. The challenge that we see in our story today and in the scripture as a whole is that God is at work in those who approach him with humility and reverence, not pride, not certainty, and not demands. A posture of humility, of recognizing that I, I might not be seeing everything, that my particular approach may have some blind spots, can and will open us to a whole new way of considering and seeing. When Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Peter can answer with the only thing he is certain of. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We are called to humility, but the invitation along with it is to cling to Jesus, not to our perspective. In following Jesus in the everyday, it's an invitation of humble trust. The goal of Christian faith is not theological prowess and mastery of knowledge about God, but in humility, learning to trust Jesus, grow in knowledge, and contour our lives to follow his ways of loving service in the world. Cultivating humility will lead directly to a posture of curiosity and openness to what God could be doing. Or you could say an expectancy for God that keeps you open and attentive to how God could be at work in your life or in the lives of others around you. I was talking to a member of our church just the other day, and we were reflecting on some of the things we learned during the time of COVID, uh, restrictions and quarantine, when everything slowed down and so many things in our lives were upended and changed. We were considering together how what we learned during that time about responding to acute uncertainty and learning patience and trust were very hard lessons. At the same time, we wondered, as we've kind of moved past some of that, if we were quickly forgetting these lessons we learned. There are circumstances that God uses in our life to invite humility. The time of COVID was definitely one of those for me, uh, probably for you as well. It also opened to be a whole new way of relating to each day with a curiosity about what God could be doing in that day. And no longer made sense to hold tightly to my perspective on particular outcomes because everything had changed. There was a curiosity and a new expectancy that I began to have. In reading and studying this text, observing the disciples and Jesus' way with them, I recognized the need to continue to cultivate this openness and expectancy. We can't lock in certain understandings of what we think is happening. We need to be open and expectant for God to surprise us. There was a curiosity. We do this as we hold on to Jesus, this curiosity and this expectancy. Because as Peter says, as we've repeated, Jesus is the one who has the words of eternal life. 
We can hear Jesus' words as we look to him, to us, say, as he did to those that were in the boat, is I, do not be afraid. So at resurrection, we are seeking <clears throat> to cultivate spaces, <clears throat> excuse me, where we can learn to be in conversation with one another in a way that invites curiosity and an awareness to God, what he could be doing in us and among us. This is something that we're seeking to do at Common Table, if you've been able to be a part of that over these last few times when we gather. It's also what we hope to see happen as people get to know each other during this time as we've come together for one worship service. There are so many ways that God is at work in our church and has been at work in our church. And the invitation we have at this time is to pursue conversation with one another, seek to learn each other's stories, to more fully appreciate and to take up the gift that we are to one another, the gift it is that we have each a story to tell of what God has been doing, what he is doing in our lives. We need each other for this effort to cultivate an openness and an attentiveness to God. We need each other's stories to help us to hear and to see in new ways of how God could be stretching us to perceive our own circumstances in new ways. So please hear my invitation to talk to someone today that you've not met or follow up on a conversation with someone in order to truly listen. One question that Chris, the other pastor here at Resurrection, has introduced to me and I now use when I get together with people as we sit over breakfast, we have conversation, is uh, the question is, in what way do you need God's help today? And I found as we've explored that question together, a simple th in a simple way, as a simple question, that has opened up delightful conversations about how we are experiencing God, how we are working through the various challenges we have, and it's opened us to see and to know one another and to know the ways that God is actively at work. This is a glimpse at the gift that we can continue to give to one another as we pursue following Jesus together. So resurrection, as we discern the way of trusting and following Jesus, may you know the secure love of Jesus, his compassionate presence, even amidst the confusion and storms of this life. And may you know the gift of God's people along the journey of growing in trust. Let's pray. God, no matter where we are, at with life's circumstances, with our sense of feeling secure or not, I pray that you would give us humility to see you and to cling to you more than anything else, to hold on to Jesus. And I pray that you would show us yourself as we hear from one another how you are at work. By your spirit, lead us into a deeper trust and an openness to your work in us and through us. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.